1: Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Ocean by H10 Hotels and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com.
2: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of iHeartRadio or their employees. This podcast also contains subject matter Which may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised.
3: Radical is released every Tuesday and brought to you absolutely free. But if you want ad free listening and early access to next week's episode, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus. For more information, check out TenderfootPlus.com. Enjoy the episode. Campsite Media.
4: And this is really where our shit started, right here. Cascade. We start claiming right up through here.
3: It took months of reporting on this story before I had a good reason to return to Atlanta's West End, to the leafy neighborhood of bungalows and Victorian homes surrounding the masjid, the corner store, and the park, the site of the shootout on March 16, 2000. The community, the village even, founded and led by Imam Jamil al with its own school, its own security force, even something like its own laws.
4: Make a right, Make a right. we'll come back in the back, and come out and what like this.
3: It was this man, Rodney Brown, who brought me back here. Rodney grew up in the West End, and he was a teenager when crack cocaine hit in the 80s. So many people on his side of town got sucked into a zombie-like existence, traded their spirit for the Little White Rocks. And Rodney, he got sucked into the fast cash, started dealing he said he could make three or four thousand dollars a day when he started out as long as he was willing to risk standing out on the corner I remember those days I was just a kid but I saw how older relatives got caught up in and out of jail on and off the streets drugs guns and violence were cornerstones of the life my parents steered me and my siblings clear of it we even kept a distance from some relatives Imam Jamil was in the thick of it, though. And as a leader, he had little choice but to confront the problem head-on. In time, he developed a reputation for, quote, cleaning up the West End, making it a safe place to raise families, not just for Muslims in his community, but also others who live nearby. Rodney witnessed some of that from his particular perspective.
4: This right here was a major trap. This happened. This is where Tommy got killed.
3: Rodney was still a teenager when he bought his first AK-47. So he saw some things, more than his share of violence. In his younger days, he might have had more acquaintances who were killed than I had friends in all of high school. Driving through the neighborhood with him, the specter of violence gave me a headache. We were surrounded by places where people who Rodney knew had been struck down.
4: Like in the book, I told you I wasn't selling drugs until the girl got killed on the bridge. Latanya. Well, Tanya? What, well, you got killed on the bread. I just got, got got myself caught up in some. I don't think they chopped him up back though, but I know they are. Uh, this is where they dumped the body at. This what Black Jane used. This was Black James trap house. This is where he sold his weight. He was right here, but he didn't get killed. He got killed back up. Oh, I should have showed y'all that when I was up there.
3: These killings happened in and around the part of the West End controlled by Imam Jamil. The area he had supposedly cleaned up. It's the roughly six or seven mostly residential blocks, apartments and houses that surround the park. Just to the south of the park was the masjid and the Mam Jamil's corner store. Uh, the
4: little corner here. That was Jamil's store. Exactly. Right
3: we turned and drove over the place where Deputy Kinchin and Deputy English were shot, the part of the street that was littered with shell casings that night in 2000. It's the mosque. This green
4: and white one? That's the mosque. Jamil Alameen stayed. In all these houses. Each one of these houses, see what I'm saying? All these Muslim houses. This community of Let's see, up in here, Ain't
3: nobody never sold no drugs here. And Mam' Jamil hated drugs and drug dealing. So Rodney and the seasoned dealers in the West End, they knew better than posting up on the corners next to the masjid, the park, and the corner store, the spot where Mam' Jamil could be found most days shooting hoops, tending to the store, or chilling outside at a picnic table. It was considered holy land. Instead, Rodney and the other dealers They did their business on the edges of a Mam' Jamil's community. Still, somehow, many of them ended up shot and dead. Rodney was one of the few who survived. In the 90s, before the shootout in March 2000, dozens of people were allegedly murdered in the West End. Dozens, with little accountability. And it wasn't just the typical violence you might expect drug dealers to encounter. In my reporting of this story, so many people described for me the breezy way Imam Jamil moved through the West End. How he seemed to carelessly float past, his thobe catching the wind. But my question after hearing these stories was this Did Imam Jamil wrest control from the dope dealers with that kind of grace alone? Or was there something else? When I looked into the killings, all those folks who Rodney knew who died, What I learned was disturbing, far worse than I ever imagined. From Campside Media, Tinderfoot TV, and iHeart Podcasts, this is Radical. I'm Mosey's Secret, Episode 7, Sacrifices.
2: So mark your calendar this Thursday, May 9th, for the NYX Anniversary Sale. Get 30% off all leak-proof underwear, shapewear, activewear, and more. It only happens once a year at Nix.com.
1: Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for-product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.
3: We learned about the murders and the thousands of pages of documents we received from the Fulton County DA's office. The stuff we got in response to our open records request. Reading those reports, what started out as a quest to get to the bottom of the shootout with the deputies and to figure out whether a Mam Jamil was really capable of that kind of violence suddenly got this whole other layer. Because the documents described a man who allegedly was way more than capable, who was involved in a rash of killings in the West End way before the shootout, who used a mafioso-like ruthlessness to get what he wanted. Figuring out whether the accusations had any merit had every bearing on understanding who a Ma'am Jamil was. And just as importantly, who law enforcement thought he was in the period leading up to the shootout. The key document we got is called Synopsis of West End Homicides. It's just 11 pages long, a list mostly, with quick summaries, dates, and the names of victims. In the section at the top, law enforcement connects Imam Jamil to 16 killings over about a decade, 1986 to 1997. Most of the victims were drug dealers. Rodney knew many, if not all, of the people who were killed. And we looked over the list with him. He's not in the streets anymore. He spent time in prison and started fresh. So part of what he felt was shock at seeing the world he was so close to with more perspective. He struggled to make sense of the amount of killing.
4: I guess when they started happening, it was normal to talk. Man, you just think about you walk out the door and they done shot this dude face off when they shot Tum and face off. And it was, you know, it was always violent in the West End, but they shot his face off. A month, not even a month later, shoot Black like, Dan 11 times in the face. Then everybody on your neighborhood, you go to the club, oh, y'all killing everybody. They thought we was killing the motherfuckers, you know what I'm saying? We ain't killing nobody. So it was attached to us. It really it wasn't no warrant for it because we wasn't doing it.
3: The synopsis of the West End homicides portrays Imam Jameel as some kind of kingpin, heading up a group of brothers from the masjid, an inner circle, who ran guns and extorted drug dealers, secretly killing the competition and anyone else who knew too much about what they were doing. Very strong allegations. In the earliest days of the West End masjid, Imam Jameel set up a security team. This I know to be true. Nothing unusual there. Most masjids have them. Brothers would walk people home from the masjid after prayer, make sure nobody out on the street caused any trouble. But the West End seems to have taken their security further than most. A member of the masjid told me how once, some guys started fighting during a basketball game at the park. It was the West End versus a different neighborhood. The outsiders left, but they were so pissed they came back with guns. Before they could do any harm though, the Muslim brothers fired. Even a Mam Jamil came out of his little shop and let loose. As the outsiders fled, they nearly flipped their car over. And when the cops came by afterwards, asking if everything was all right, the Weston brothers said, yeah, they had it under control. It was frontier justice and guns were critical. On any given day in the park, a good number of men had rifles hanging on straps under their thobes. At night, they rode around in cars or stood out on corners also strapped, they could hold their own behind the trigger, too. The brothers sometimes went to the shooting range together for target practice, and the Mam Jamil would often join, just like he used to in his earliest days in the movement. There were many, many guns flowing through the West End. In the late 80s and early 90s, Rodney, he wasn't only dealing in crack and weed, he sold guns, too.
4: Everybody who wanted guns in Atlanta, did like they wanted weed in Atlanta, they came to the West End. They wanted a pistol. I said, okay, what kind you want?
3: Rodney's gun supplier was right around the corner. He was buying from the Muslims. I had Muslims knock
4: on my door in the middle of the night with boxes of guns, man. No lie, I can't count them. I'm talking about guns, rifles.
3: Yeah. In the early 90s, two brothers from the Masjid were charged with running guns out of the storefront right next to a Ma'am Jamil's corner store. They bought the guns legally, but they were accused of selling them, like they might have done to Rodney, without keeping the right paperwork to track where they went. A federal agent testified that a handful of guns went to the Masjid's security patrol, but more than 200 were recovered in Philadelphia, Detroit, New Haven, and New York City. Over three years, the two accused men allegedly bought at least $73,000 worth of firearms, and they probably weren't just being used for target practice. Many were Davis 380s, a handgun with a reputation as a Saturday night special because it's cheap and often used in crimes. At the gun-running trial, a member of the masjid and the security patrol testified for the prosecution. His name was Abdul Rahman. He was in prison at the time for shooting and killing a man. On the stand, he said he bought guns from the accused men and then sent them to New York. But he stopped short of saying that the defendants knowingly sold guns to criminals planning to commit crimes. Maybe that was because on the day he testified, a Ma'am Jamil showed up, the picture of menace. He was wearing an all-black thobe and a black turban and black charcoal around his eyes. If the FBI thought this dude Shahid might implicate the Imam, they better think again. Not long after the gun running case wrapped up, Imam Jamil got caught up in a case himself.
0: He was once the
5: leader of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and part of the Black Power Movement. Today, H. Rapp Brown is known as Jamil Abdullah Alamein, and he appeared in court. He is charged with aggravated assault and weapons violations after allegedly shooting a man July 26th. In
3: 1995, Atlanta police responded to a shooting at West End Park of a man named William Miles. One bullet entered and exited his leg without doing any permanent damage. The responding officer said Miles ID'd Imam Jamil as the shooter. Then, the next morning, Imam Jamil and another brother from the Masjid went to visit Miles at home. When an Atlanta police detective later interviewed Miles, he did not identify Imam Jamil as the shooter. But a few days later, that detective and some federal agents pulled Imam Jamil over in his black Mercedes. They arrested him for aggravated assault and for carrying a 45 caliber pistol without a license. We found a recording of an interview a local television reporter did with a ma'am, Jamil, a few days later, after he got out of jail on bond. He was in his early 50s at the time. During the interview, he's standing on the sidewalk outside his store, wearing a black thobe and a black knitted kufi. He has a thin beard and oval glasses.
5: Do you know William Miles? Only from reading the paper and seeing his name, you know, this is my familiar, uh, being familiar with him through
0: that. You never met with him?
5: And I went to his house, uh, if he's the same person who was shot. I asked him, uh, it, was it true that he was saying that a Muslim shot him? He said that uh, he saw a tall person and a uh, person had black on. And the person who shot him, you know, was tall and had black on. Was it you? To do what? To go see him? To that talk to him? shot him? To shoot him? That's the allegation the police have made. Well, again, that, that's the thing that has to be determined in
3: court, man. then the reporter asked the Ma'am Jamil if he still thinks violence is as American as cherry pie.
5: I think it's evident. And I think that more people realize, you know, what was being said. And I have always advocated self-defense. Allah says in the Qur'an, tyranny and oppression is worse than slaughter. Fight them wherever you may find them. So again, that whole sense of the right to self-defense as a human is a platform we've always stood on.
0: I guess then the obvious question is, did you have a 45 automatic pistol on you as a means of self-defense?
5: That's a part of the case, again, that has to be litigated in
3: court. Imam Jamil didn't seem to be denying he was involved. But William Miles, the victim of the shooting, he later suggested that he was actually pressured by the police to name Imam Jamil as the shooter. Four national Islamic groups urged the Department of Justice to investigate the arrest. The charges were eventually dropped, and the case went away. So, not counting the incident with the sheriff's deputies, that's two shootings at the park that Imam Jamil may have been involved in. The one after the basketball game, and the shooting of William Miles. Nobody that we know of was seriously hurt. And the shootings could be described as part of protecting the community. Self-defense, in a way. Like Imam Jamil told the reporter in that interview, it's a platform he's always stood on. But the Imam killing all those drug dealers, or even ordering them killed, like the allegations we saw in the synopsis of Western homicides, that would be on a whole other level. I don't think Imam Jamil was pulling the trigger in those murders, but he did know the man who did much of the killing, if not all of it, because he was a well-respected member of the masjid and the security patrol. Law enforcement knew this killer too, and not just because they were trying to catch him. No, they had a secret relationship with him, one that reveals just how far they'd go to take down a Ma'am Jamil.
2: So, mark your calendar this Thursday, May 9th, for the NYX anniversary sale. Get 30% off all leak proof underwear, shapewear, activewear, and more. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's
1: K N I X.com.
2: Don't miss this.
1: Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Please visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.
3: In the late 80s, when Ronnie got into the game and started dealing, he had at his disposal in the West End, to use the business school term, a network. He grew up about a block from West End Park, and the kids he played with, many of them were still around. That included Muslim kids, too.
4: Yeah, I, I hung with the Muslims and smoked weed and smoked cigarettes and drink.
1: Them the ones that
4: came to my place to shoot pool, but they still went and prayed every Friday, you know? Right. Just like Christians. Just like anybody else. Just like all religions. All of them not good. All of them not bad. It's just like the ones that hung around with me probably was the bad seeds. I was a bad seed, so... And that's, that's that relationship. I grew up with him. How you going to do it? People say they just killed uh or one of us dead. Why? He knew us since we was kids.
3: Shahid Abdurrahman was maybe the Muslim who Rodney came to know best in the West End. He had moved to Atlanta from New York, where he had lived through shattering trauma. It was some Jamaicans that killed his mama. And he
4: stayed in the house for like four days with a dead body.
3: When he was how old? Like, he was real young. Know, like like you know, a
4: tough Six or seven. Think like he stayed in the he stayed in the house with a dead body like four days. and was his mom. That's the story to tell people. You know what I'm saying?
3: Shahid's past is pretty mysterious, other than that, but his childhood seemed to have marked his destiny for darkness. Shahid said that when he moved to Atlanta at 17 or 18, it was because he was fleeing the aftermath of some shooting. He joined the Masjid and the security team and over time built a reputation as a gentleman, a good Muslim, and a family man. But he was secretly, or not so secretly, depending on whom you talk to, living a double life. And the security team was his cover. If most guys on the security patrol kept a defensive posture, standing guard in the neighborhood or escorting families to their houses at night, Shahid seemed to use his authority to shake down the streets, going out sometimes with younger guys, teenagers mostly, who went after drug dealers like they were cops, busting into trap houses and confiscating dope. And that response seemed to blur the lines between right and wrong. I heard how these guys got rid of the drugs they seized at first, flushed them down the toilet. But after a while, they realized they were throwing money away. And I wonder, when dealers didn't back down, what happened then? A guy like Shaheed, who seems to have developed a taste for blood, he thrived. With
4: Shaheed, everybody knew he was a dangerous person. And, and, and my friend, say, said, hey, whatever you do, don't get in the car with that motherfucker. Because they know you'll come back with a murder case. In
3: 1990, Shahid was involved in two killings. The victims were in that document we got, the synopsis of Western Homicides. Then, about a year later, Shahid was involved in another killing. People began to suspect he was doing hit jobs and to wonder who was calling the shots. Shaheed became a leader of the patrol and became close to Imam Jamil. But eventually, he was charged with murder. And with Shaheed off the streets, the violence in the West End seemed to taper off. Meanwhile, after Shaheed got locked up, Rodney said he was doing well for himself. When things were really humming, he was moving hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of drugs on a monthly basis. Rodney stayed in touch with Shaheed while Shaheed was in prison, sent him weed, Shahid was his friend, and Rodney, in his criminal way at the time, was generous like that. Around this time, the FBI came offering Shahid some help, too. We know that while Shahid was incarcerated, he met with an agent named Bill Gant. Not long after, Shahid testified, for the prosecution, in the gun-running case against two brothers from the Weston Masjid, when Imam Jamil showed up in all black. Then... Likely in exchange for Shahid's cooperation, Gant, the agent, put in a word with the Georgia Parole Board. And by 1995, Shahid was back on the street, and back in the masjid. He had done approximately four years for a killing. And this is when folks on the outside started wondering, what the fuck is going on here? When Shahid got out, Rodney was surprised he didn't hear from him right away. I'm a
4: man, I'm
3: the mother, I'm a man. He know that. He
4: know, he didn't hurt, I'm taking care of this motherfucker in prison. I'm sending weed to prison for free. Never, never asked for a penny.
3: So why when you come speak to me? Why? And Ronnie didn't want to worry about Shahid walking up behind him on the street with a pistol or a shotgun. Rodney was starting to think Shaheed was a rat. His words, not mine. So after three months of waiting, Rodney got his address and stopped by. I knocked on the door. He looked at him. I fucking seen it was me. He
4: opened the door. I said, what's up, man? How long have you been out? You know, and he was like, I've been out a few months. Come I'll come on in.
3: Rodney asked Shaheed straight up. How'd you get out of jail? To just... Shaheed told Rodney that the brothers in the masjid, they wanted him back in the neighborhood. They said, "Look." why don't you testify against one of the accused in this gun-running case so that you can get your time cut? Just don't implicate the big man, meaning Imam Jamil. Jameel. Rodney believes Shahid. But here's what's weird about that story, from my perspective anyway. The brothers who Shahid testified against were members of the Masjid since the earliest days, founding members, really. Why let them take the fall so that Shahid, a much more dangerous man by all accounts, could come home. Why would the Imam give that the okay? People told me that Imam Jamil would not block anyone from practicing their religion, that Imam Jamil was close with everyone, including Shaheed, a spiritual advisor always guiding people back to Islam. But that got messy. Soon after Shaheed got out of prison in March of 1995, he killed a man. In April, there was another body. Later that year, two more. Shaheed was linked to at least eight killings just in the West End before the end of 1995. Shaheed, Rodney said, would brag about what he was doing. He's a
4: serial killer. I'm
3: telling you, he got to kill.
4: He gonna starve some beef and there ain't no beef. He gonna make up a reason to kill a motherfucker.
3: You might remember Sister Jamila Jahad from the first episode of the podcast. She converted to Islam, took the Shahada from my ma'am Jamil, and raised her family in the West End. Sister Jamila ran a construction company, and she was having problems with an employee or a contractor, someone she was working with. Anyway, one day, Shahid came up to her at the masjid.
1: He said to me, you want me to take care of them, you know, for not not doing something or paying you or something like that? I said, no, what you talking about? Well, you take care of how, (laughs) you know? But I had no idea. Who he, you know, who he had become. That's
3: how he approached you?
1: Yeah, but he was a part, you know, his friend were working for me. And but I, do you know,
3: you know what he meant when he said that?
1: Yeah, I'm thinking murder, in a minute, you know. I think that's what he was thinking too. Yeah, and I said, no, what are you talking about? What are you, what are you, what you plan, what you doing?
3: It was so casual how Shahid asked her if he should take somebody out. There's no doubt in my mind that wasn't the first time that he asked that question to a member of the Masjid. And there's little doubt in my mind that after all the years he spent in the community, that at least a few people said yes. Why else would God-fearing, family-loving folks keep a guy like him around, if not for skeletons? Literally, skeletons. What's worse, and I'm sorry to drop this bombshell on you, Shahid was grooming the more troubled boys in the community to become killers letting them touch his guns at first, then taking them out shooting, and then out on hits. I talked to one of these guys. It took him decades to get his life on track. For the life of me, I can't understand how a person like Shaheed could fly under the radar in such a small community. Imam Jamil would ultimately pay a price. Because after Shaheed got out of prison and returned to the community, he was on the federal payroll as an FBI informant. I don't know how anyone could be surprised by that. Everyone knew Shahid had already cooperated once, but he was secretly helping the Fed to build another case. In the 90s, long before September 11th, the FBI was targeting alleged Muslim extremists. There was a surveillance operation named Vulgar Betrayal. We know from the documents obtained by Karima al-Amin, Imam Jamil's wife, that the FBI suspected Imam Jamil was some kind of terrorist, or maybe supporting Islamic terrorists abroad. One report describes Imam Jamil as a leader of a network of masjids with international connections that are basically fronts for criminal activity. It's true that Imam Jamil had some relationships with Muslims abroad, but was he a terrorist? We've seen zero evidence of that. Meanwhile, people in the West End were still losing their lives. People right there in Imam Jamil's neighborhood. From what we can see in the documents, the FBI wasn't so concerned about that. Shahid handler was the FBI agent, Bill Gant, who appeared to surveil Imam Jamil in the masjid for most of the 90s. We don't know much about Gant, except that he started to work for the FBI in the late 80s and he allegedly got into it once with one of his supervisors for pursuing Imam Jamil even after he'd been ordered to stop. While he was under oath, Gant said his role in the investigation of Imam Jamil in the Masjid ended at the beginning of 95. But months later, in the summer of 95, he helped arrest Imam Jamil after he was accused of shooting that man in West End Park, William Miles. And then, a year later, in 96, this was after Shahid was connected to at least three killings over the previous year and a half. Gant said he had contact with Shahid once a week, and he had seen him in person two weeks earlier. Gant was meeting with a killer on the regular. Atlanta police were looking into all the bodies piling up in the West End, and Shahid seemed to be telling the cops that people other than himself were involved, possibly even saying that a ma'am Jamil was calling the shots. By around 96, local police knew that Shaheed was at least connected to multiple killings. A detective in the Atlanta Police Department was investigating, and he brought in Gantt for an interview. The detective wrote up a summary afterward. He said that Gantt appeared nervous. He did not volunteer information unless specifically asked. The detective asked Gantt how much he was paying Shaheed, but Gant wouldn't say. When Gantt asked which murders were linked to Shaheed, the detective said, all of the homicides in the West End area. Here's Rodney Brown again.
4: The FBI agent, the agent knew, maybe he found out later on, but he had to find out that boy was killing people. He had to. If you're investigating Jameel, I in mean the West End, and all these boys coming up dead from the West End, what the fuck? Why are we investigating? Now we say, okay, this guy got killed, this guy. Now the next question is, who killed him? So that would have led them back to Shahid, right? Come on, man! that is just—none of it really makes sense.
3: What if Shaheed's telling them that Jamil is the one who's doing it? Do you think they would believe that? Th- th- that Jamil is committing murder. That Jamil is ordering it, and so th- this is—you talk about how Shahid's playing everybody. Maybe he was playing them too. He was.
4: You, that's a good fact. He definitely was telling them that, but still. How many of them? How many of us would they want to sacrifice to bust him? It ain't like they're selling bricks, man. We dealing with people' bodies.
3: They want a drug deal. How many of us, Rodney asked, would they be willing to sacrifice to bust a Mam' Jamil? To me, all of this clearly says some human lives were dispensable in whatever grand calculation the feds were making. Black lives, troubled lives. At the time of the shootout involving the Fulton County Sheriff's deputies in March of 2000, Shahid was in prison on a parole violation. After he got out, he kept killing. In March of 2002, he shot someone in the back of the head and killed them. Then he killed another person later that year. And the next year, he was involved in at least two more murders. In 2004, narcotics detectives targeting a drug house found Shahid with guns and drugs. They arrested him. With him off the streets, another man from the West End told law enforcement about at least one murder he knew Shahid was responsible for. An Atlanta police detective went to interview Shahid, and Shahid started confessing. By our count, he was involved in killing at least 11 people, but he allegedly killed many more. There was a story about his confession in Atlanta's biggest newspaper, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. It had the following line. Police believe the death toll may be as high as 50. 50 bodies. Rodney thinks the number is even higher. Shahid is now serving a life sentence in prison. Finally. He tried to appeal his conviction, arguing that the recorded confession shouldn't be admissible, but the Georgia Supreme Court rejected his appeal. We couldn't get an interview with Shaheed, but we got this recording that someone made of him.
4: When you look at that article, like I don't had to deal with that article a lot of times. You know what I'm saying? These dudes in here, you got some niggas want to say I'm a rat. But, you know, that ain't, that ain't that ain't the label you want to be having in prison. You understand what
3: I mean? In the recording, Shahid doesn't deny that he killed anyone. He suggests that he confessed to make a point, basically to brag about how many murders he committed. Shaheed was mad at the man who snitched on him to get a deal
4: keep it real with you. I said, I know. He said, so if y'all let them niggas, y'all not even lock these niggas up about one murder. I said, I tell you what, I just about 20 murders. If you let them niggas out for one body, I give you 10 bodies, bro. That would be the end of
3: that. Basically, Shahid said, if you let this other guy off because he gave you information on one murder, I'll show you, I can give you information on way more than just one murder.
4: When it comes to the West End, man, I look at it like, and they're just being spread up with you, man. It's like, You know, ain't nobody perfect, bro. You know what I'm saying? We all got
3: skeletons. When it comes to the West End, Shahid said, we all got skeletons. This one guy played a huge part in who Imam Jamil came to be in the eyes of local and federal law enforcement. Built him up into parts mobster and terrorist. It's impossible for me to separate fact from fiction here, or again, to really know why Imam Jamil kept a guy like Shahid around. But shouldn't there have been limits to Imam Jamil's policy of keeping the masjid open for anyone to practice Islam? Limits far short of turning a blind eye to a serial killer? From where I stand, keeping Shahid around was either a severe miscalculation on Imam Jamil's part, or he was okay with the violence, maybe even endorsed it. I do know that Imam Jamil traded on fear. Many people in the West End were scared of him. That's part of the way he brought the neighborhood under control how he cleaned it up. One of the accusations in the synopsis of Weston homicides I haven't told you about yet. It's a case that could be helpful in determining where Shaheed's stories end and Imam Jamil's own actions begin. The very first victim listed in the dossier was a man whose name was Clive Hunter, though he also went by a Muslim name. Clive served prison time with Imam Jamil in New York. By some accounts, he taught Imam Jamil Islam after he converted, and Imam Jamil pledged loyalty to him. Imam Jamil left prison first, moved to Atlanta and established the West End Masjid. When Clive got out later, he figured the Masjid was his to take over since Imam Jamil had pledged loyalty. Long story short, a rivalry developed that ended in 1987 when Clive was shot to death by assailants who were never identified. Some folks in the community thought a Jamil was behind it, and this was before Shaheed ever got to town. It places a body at the foundation of everything that came afterward.
2: So mark your calendar this Thursday, May 9th for the NYX anniversary sale. Get 30% off all leak-proof underwear, shapewear, activewear, and more. It only happens once a year at nyx.com.
1: At retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit gamebridgeio slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.
3: These are the names of the people in the West End who lost their lives. The ones we know about. Kennedy Keller. Clive Hunter. James Farrell. Tommy Jones, Quantavius Kelly, Carlin Wilson, Jamie Lee James, Sammy Lee Sawyer, Roderick Fulton, Damon Brown, Clarence Poon, Andre Lane, Jacqueline Johnson, Marlon Sadler, Antonio Wyatt, James Gary Jones. Cornelius James Nelson, Perry Miller, Tommy Warren, Corey Dunn, Corey Whitehead, Shannon Frazier, and Calvin Battle. Many people Rodney knew from the West End were killed over about a decade, most of them by Shahid Rahman, a man who was paid by the federal government. Remember someone in the Atlanta Police Department said Shaheed may have killed as many as 50 people. That would rank him among the top three most prolific known serial killers in modern American history. Rodney has become obsessed with all these cases. He wrote a book, From the West End to Little Pakistan, he called it, about Muslims moving into the neighborhood. And he's about to publish the sequel, looking more closely at Shaheed. He's working on a documentary too, But the murder that Rodney seems to think about the most is the one of his partner, Lee Sawyer.
4: Me and Lee was like brothers, the best of brothers. Yeah, we was. Lee was a wild guy. He was a guy, uh, his hardest guy. He he wasn't afraid of anything. And that's kind of dangerous, you know? But he was the coolest person, give you anything. Real good hustler, A ladies' man, you know, you get him mad, he, would just, he, he, he could beat you to death with his bare hands. He was that type of guy. But he was, everybody. if you ask anybody else, they'll say he was a night nice, always smile. That's how I say he was always. Big smile.
3: Lee's mom visits Rodney sometimes.
4: And with her, she, she never going to recover from it.
3: There are mothers and fathers and children connected to all the people killed in the West End. And Rodney thinks about them.
4: People that was in charge, they need an answer to these people. The victim, It need an answer to this victim impact behind this. They need some answers, man, because it's just too much. It's just, it's so much. And, you know, I'm just scratching the surface on this, man.
3: Maybe most of all, Rodney wants more attention on the whole mess. That
4: ain't news. I think it's ridiculous. I think it, I I just, I just look at it like every day like, if this ain't real news, what is, what we watching now, you
3: know? We tried our best to put Rodney's questions and our questions to the people in charge. I'll start at the bottom. The Atlanta detective who investigated some of the killings in the mid nineties, he didn't agree to an interview. Really. It seems like he did his best to make something happen with these cases. He interviewed the FBI agent, Gant, and he took the evidence he had to prosecutors.
0: I did have presented to me a collection of investigations into these deaths.
3: When Robert McBurney, the prosecutor, was with the Fulton County DA, he reviewed some materials about the killing of drug dealers in the West End. It was years before he was assigned to a Mam' Jamil's murder trial
0: some leads and theories as to how they might be connected and who might connect them. But it never got to the level where I or anyone I talked with was comfortable saying, that's a case we could bring, get past a grand jury, that's less difficult. But ultimately, were we confident that we could prove something beyond a reasonable doubt? If you don't have that confidence, you really shouldn't then say, great, we're gonna indict you anyway, there there was nothing There was zero on the forensic side, but there were people who said things, but not necessarily people who would come to court to say these things.
3: Maybe Shahid was good at killing people and not getting caught. That seemed legit. And it's not McBurney's job, or the job of other prosecutors, to gather evidence for a case. Still, McBurney, or other prosecutors, the DA maybe, they could have pushed for more attention within law enforcement on these murders. We know there were meetings, but we don't see any evidence of an elevated level of concern like you might expect for a potential serial killer on the loose. On the federal side of things, let's consider the biggest potential allegation against Imam Jamil during the 90s, that he was an Islamic terrorist. Again, to be clear here, we know that Imam Jamil had some connections with Muslim leaders abroad, but we have seen no evidence of any terrorist activity. But for argument's sake, Let's say the FBI knew something that we don't know. Maybe that would, in their minds, justify some, I'm gonna say, radical steps by the federal government, like using a murderer as an informant. Maybe they would consider it worth it to allow some harm in order to prevent even greater harm, like a big terrorist attack or something. But when I asked McBurney about this, who, by the way, was hired as a federal prosecutor after Imam Jamil's trial, he said building a case based on information from a guy like Shahid Abdul Rahman it would have been shoddy police work.
0: This was an area and a climate and a community where it advanced people's interest to say they were involved or they weren't. They did these things and they didn't. But the scenario you described would be yet another reason why I think it didn't make sense to, um, if, if that's gonna be your source of information, is like one of these mob cases where, yeah, I killed 20 people, but let me tell you who the real bad guy is. <laughs> what do you mean? If you the fact that you pulled the trigger, who, where's your credibility, even if your answer is, well, but I did it on the direction of so-and-so. I do know that federal agents would not be permitted to continue to use a source if that source engaged in unauthorized activity, and certainly killing someone would be unauthorized. And certainly, had there been any evidence that he did these things, not only would he be pursued and prosecuted, but there would have been no more relationship between him and his handlers. Right. But in either case, if he did these things while an informant, that would be a violation of some sort, uh, you would agree? Oh, I'd agree. It's a violation of the law. He's a murderer. Um, and uh, I'm confident that if a federal handler had any inkling that Abdurrahman was doing anything along the lines of what you're describing and what he's describing, that would have been the end of it for Abdurrahman. He'd be off the streets and in custody.
3: So, based on McBurney's criteria here, I think it's fair to say the FBI messed up, maybe even broke its own rules, or the law. In the years after Gant helped Shahid get out of prison, he should have known that Shahid was killing people. Sure, maybe it was more of a problem for Atlanta police to handle. It was their jurisdiction. Maybe this is an issue of failed oversight and communication. But we know Gant was at least still close to an investigation of a Mam'am Jamil. How could all these killings in the same neighborhood not come up? Hi, looking for a Mr. Gant. Yeah. Uh, my name is Mosi Secret. I'm here with um, Johnny Coffin. We're producers working on a podcast about Jamil interested. Um, okay. Um, are you familiar with him? All we got from Gant through the door of his apartment was a not interested and a thank you. We left him a letter, but we never heard back. We also emailed the FBI a list of questions, nothing back from them either. Despite all the death and destruction, the FBI still didn't make a case against Imam Jamil. But the Bureau persisted in the West End even after Shahid was locked up in the late 90s. They had other informants there, and they were surveilling the masjid right up to the time of the shootout. And so it seems possible that on the night of March 16, 2000, someone with the FBI, maybe an informant, maybe an agent, would end up with blood on their hands, too.
5: He was very irritable and upset about what was going on. And I had never
3: seen him like that before. That's on the next and final episode of Radical. Radical is a production of Campside Media, Tinderfoot TV, and iHeart podcasts. Radical was reported and written by Johnny Kaufman and me, Mosi Secret. Johnny Kaufman is our senior producer, Sheba Joseph is our associate producer. Editing by Eric Benson, Johnny Kaufman, Emily Martinez, and Matt Scher. Fact-checking by Sophie Hurwitz, Kaylin Lynch, and Layla Dose. Original music by Kyle Murdoch and by Ray Murray of Organized Noise. Sound design and mixing by Kevin Seaman. Recording by Ewan laitrem Ewan and Sheba Joseph. Campside Media's operations team is Doug Slaywan, Ashley Warren, Aaliyah Papes, Destiny Dingle, and Sabina Mara. The executive producers at Campside Media are Josh Dean, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Adam Hoff, and Matt Scher. For Tenderfoot TV, executive producers are Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay. The executive producers at iHeart Podcasts are Matt Frederick and Alex Williams, with additional support from Trevor Young.